0: Please be seated. Uh, you may know that Jeff Jacobs grew up in this church, and we were greatly blessed to have him ordained to the priesthood in this church, and today represents his first celebration as a priest of the Holy Communion. So To God be the glory always, and may you have a, a wonderful, rich gospel ministry. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit as you promised in Scripture today. So fill us more and more with your love, your redeeming grace, and your sanctifying presence in our lives in this Advent season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the year was 1776, it was December, and the American colonists were at full out war with Mother England. The Declaration of Independence had just been signed earlier that year in July. But this time, there was bleakness in the air. New York had already fallen to the British. The army was forced to retreat across New Jersey, and there is nearly a 90% attrition rate from those leaving their post due to desertion. But while everyone else was preparing for almost certain defeat... It was General George Washington that had a plan for victory. Washington's plan was audacious. He was to take this ill-equipped, ragtag group of colonial soldiers and cross the ice-choked Delaware River and once on the other side to walk nine miles in pitch-black darkness and cold to a place called Trenton, to the teeth of the enemy, and take on the greatest fighting army of that age, which was the Hessians, a German group of mercenaries fighting on behalf of England. What a plan, right? What was he thinking? Oh my goodness. To make matters worse, some English loyalists had tipped off the Hessians that Washington was coming. They knew he had plans to come. And yet we know the rest of the story, right? We won. We won. In case you didn't know, we won. The Battle of Trenton became one of the great turning points in the war. Not only did Washington rout the enemy, but it was a lopsided victory. Only two Americans were killed, five were wounded. For the Hessians, 22 men were killed, 83 men were wounded, and 896 people were taken captive alive. It was a stunning victory. Now, most historians will agree that the reason that the hessians lost that day was simple they were ill prepared they were ill prepared they had feelings of superiority and arrogance and the hessians took no precautions they had no plan they didn't even post guards at the river crossings not only that but it's clear from history that the hessians were not baptist <laughs> because legend has it that when george washington attacked they were all drunk You see, the day before was Christmas Day, and Germans really know how to celebrate Christmas. (laughs) Forewarned, yet arrogant, called upon to prepare, yet they did nothing. Told to be alert, to stay awake, and they slumbered and slept off a drunken stupor. They scoffed at the plans that Washington had. And the Bible warns us today about scoffing at the plans that God has. It is the season of Advent literally which is the season of preparation, a warning to stay awake, to be prepared, to take stock of our spiritual lives, to repent and recommit to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles today, let's look at that message of Advent. It's in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. If you have your phones, look there. This is an amazingly rich text that is chock full of Advent themes. Many of you will see in your Bible a heading over this passage that says the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. Three things about the day of the Lord. Who will be judged on that day? Who will escape judgment on that day? And how are the saints to live as the day of the Lord approaches? How are we to live? So who will be judged? Look at verse 3 of 2 Peter 3. He mentions the scoffers. The scoffers who are following their own sinful desires. It's clear from the text today that these scoffers were far from God spiritually. They embraced a life of hedonism, pursuing not God, but selfishness and sinfulness and depravity. They mocked God's holiness in that way. Like the Hessians, though, they mocked God in another way. They were full of such pride and pretense and self-righteousness that they were ill-prepared. For the day of judgment. Look at verse 4. They were saying on that day, Where is the promise of his coming? Then they went on to say, You know, the world's going on as it always has. Jesus isn't coming back. Where's the promise? What Peter's doing is driving home the point that these people are living their lives as though there would never be a judge or there ne- will never be a judgment for sin, unprepared for the day of the Lord. I preached a sermon about this years ago in Conway, and I had a prominent attorney who promptly wrote this long email telling me in a a real angry tone, he was livid, that my sermon sounded much more like a Baptist sermon than an Episcopal sermon. I took that as a compliment. He said, what's more, my God is not a God of judgment coming to to, uh, judge the world. My God is a God of love. Help him, Jesus, help him. Is it any wonder that the Episcopal Church is in such trouble these days? Theology matters, my friend. I had to ask the man, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read about Adam and Eve and because of their sin they were expelled from the garden? That was punishment, right? Have you ever read about God taking Noah and building a boat and that through the cleansing waters of the flood that God judged the sinfulness of men? Have you ever read Daniel? Revelation: Second Peter: even the words of Jesus in the Gospels. Have you ever even thought about what you say in the Nicene Creed that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead? You see what that prominent attorney was actually saying is that I reject what you say, God? I'm wiser than you. I'm less barbaric than you are. I'm more able to, to see what's good for the human race. I'm loving. And I accept your love, but I reject your judgment. How arbitrary. What arrogance. Friends, the truth is this. If Jesus is Lord at all, Jesus has got to be Lord of all. Both love and judgment. Second Peter reminds us in verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, the scoffers, the arrogant, the ungodly, those who turn their faces away from Jesus' promise of love and forgiveness and grace will have to give an account on the last great day for Jesus will come again to judge the world. Advent is our calling, folks, to come back to Jesus, to prepare with eager expectation and longing for his coming again. Yes, his coming on Christmas Day, to be our savior, to deal with our sin, but it's coming again on the last day to judge the world and cleanse it of impurity with fire and judgment. So who will escape this judgment? Second point. The thing that we need to keep in mind is that in the midst of judgment there is a word of grace this morning. There's a word of grace. I know I've had parishioners through the years tell me that they don't like to read apocalyptic things like Revelation because it's frightening in its tone, it's cosmic in its scale, it's distressing in its context and in its message. But let me tell you guys, if you read Revelation or 2 Peter or any of the apocalyptic literature, you need to know this, at the core of the message is good news. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins and sits on the throne on the last great day, his saints win. Yes, sin is judged. But on that day, believers are saved. So you need to get this message today. God is not out to get you. God is not out to get you, but to claim you for his own and bring you to where he is. Yes, for the scoffers and the unrepentant idolaters, for those who seek to live lives separated from God, it will be a dark, dark day. But for those who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. They will be saved. God is a God of grace. Think of Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Think of Ezekiel thirty three, eleven: As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked might turn away from sin and turn back to me. That's what God wants. He is merciful and gracious. And I want you to see that grace this morning. God is not out to punish sinners. God delights in sinners who repent and return to him. Look at verses 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The scoffers said, Where's the delay? Where's this day of the Lord you Christians are talking about? Peter gives two rebuttals in that one sentence, in that one passage there. First of all, he says that time is a matter of perspective. And we know that, right? If you're an eight year old waiting for Christmas, time at this point is going slowly, right? But if you're a grandparent or a parent trying to prepare Christmas for 30 relatives coming by, time is really speeding up. Lord, give me one more day. I need to prepare. If you've ever been on vacation, you know that to be true. You you spend a week somewhere beautiful and enjoying yourself and you look at your spouse on the last day and you say, where has time gone? It's flown by. So time is a matter of perspective. A thousand years for God For us is like a day for God. But the second thing Peter is saying is grace. Look at verse 9. He's delaying because he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient. And he's not saying I'm delaying the, the coming judgment so that you can get yourself right, clean yourself up, make yourself worthy of a relationship with me. No, what does he say? He said he's patient that we might find repentance in verse 9. Repentance, that major theme of Advent, is simply taking a spiritual account of your spiritual life before God, is to confess everything that you know is standing in the way of your relationship with God, is to turn away from those things and turn your face back to Jesus, to examine the idols that have taken root deeply in your heart, to get real with God about all your unconfessed sin, and turn to Jesus. And the good news, perhaps the greatest news that we have, is that when you repent and confess before the Lord, you're not only forgiven, but you're given a gift. It's called righteousness. And scholars call it imputed righteousness. John Piper put it like this, when I repent and believe in Jesus, I'm united to Christ Therefore, what he did and achieved becomes mine by this union through faith alone. His righteous life is imputed to me. What Christ achieved is counted as mine. You get his glorious garments of righteousness. That's what Isaiah 53 had in mind way back in the Old Testament. But he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. But by knowledge, by relationship with this righteous one, my servant, many people will be accounted righteous, pure, and holy. Everything that was his becomes ours. When we repent, Revelation 7, here's John looking up into heaven, sees all these saints dressed in white, and he said, who are these? They've made it through the tribulation, through the judgment, through the second coming, and yet they still stand? Who are they? And the elder says back from heaven, these are the ones who've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. My friends, have you ever done something abominable? Have you done something that haunts you to this very day? Turn it over to Jesus. Your shoulders are too narrow to support such guilt, but Christ's outstretched arms are meant to bear the weight. And you'll not only be forgiven, but you'll be washed in the blood. He would be given the pure wedding garments of Christ himself. So who stands on the last day? It's not those who are good and holy. It's the ones who admit they're not holy. And they make repentance a daily practice in their lives, turning to Jesus. So how are the saints to live in this day as we approach the coming of the Lord? Here's the deal. Stephen Covey wrote seven habits of highly effective people. Habit number two is this. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end. I think Peter would say the same thing. If you wake up every day and pray for the coming of the Lord, it's a joyful thing. Verse 11 and 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in our lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? You see, there's no fear in that. There's confidence in Jesus. With eager expectation and hopeful longing, we look for him to come again. In the Advent season, Father Jeff will say this preface in a few minutes. He will say, without shame or fear, we will rejoice to behold his appearing. Wrapped in his righteousness, clothed in his purity, we will stand without shame or fear. Old things will pass away, sin will be judged, things will dissolve, cleansing will happen, chaff will be burned away, but the saints will stand. There's an old German hymn written 200 years ago that expresses that, and I think he had Second Peter in mind. It says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, thy beauty are my glorious dress amid flaming worlds in these arrayed. With joy shall I lift up my head. On that day we stand in the righteousness of Christ. The bridegroom will come for his bride, and with joy we will lift up our heads. Why? Because he was judged, we won't have to be judged. Because he was dressed in sin on the cross, we will bear his beautiful garments. Because he withstood judgment on the day of Calvary, judgment will not fall on his saints. So look toward the end, and I'll end with this application. If you look toward the end and find strength and confidence in the coming day of the Lord, you'll have three times, kinds of peace. One is that whatever setbacks and troubles you may go through in this life, you will be given strength to endure them because you know that they're temporary. Look to the end. You'll have peace. And knowing that the day of the Lord is coming, you'll know that punishment for evil will be applied in perfect proportion to the evil that was done by that person. So guess what? You can get off the throne. You can let Jesus have the judgment seat. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And the third type of peace you'll have is in knowing that this world is not all that there is. Even the most beautiful and gracious aspects of this life are distorted because it's fallen. The beauty and the grandeur of the world to come is something to look forward to with hope and expectation. Jesus promised us a new heaven and a new earth in verse 13 where righteousness will reign. And since all these things will thus be destroyed, what sort of people shall we be? The kind of people who look forward to the end, who live lives of repentance. God is not out to get you. He is patient and kind and grace-filled. That's why he's delayed such a long time that we might repent and turn to him and live. So live lives of hopeful expectation and joy, for your king is coming. And embrace the peace of knowing the end of the story. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us these apocalyptic texts. We know that we will stand at the last day without fear or shame to behold your appearing. So come, Jesus, come and make this world right again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.